Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. If you have your Bibles, why don't you join me opening them up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and while you're turning there, I'm going to invite up Francesca Canales, who's going to lead us in our scripture reading this morning, and you could stand to your feet this morning as we read from Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 72. (laughs) You got this, Francesca. Okay. (laughs) Let's look at the scripture together. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came to the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my hand, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given him a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain man followed him, having a linen cloth and thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. 
For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? And he kept silent, answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again, and a little later, those who stood by said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, <laughs> and your speech shows it. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, then Peter came to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he thought about it, he wept. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus. We can't believe that this happened to you. Of all that we've gone through in life that we felt undeserving of, there's nothing that compares to this moment, these next few days in this gospel and history. Jesus, you, the lover of the world, the creator of the world, you're tried, you're beaten, you're betrayed, you're abandoned by your very creation, by man. Um, and so, Lord, um, we know this is such an important piece of history, and that's an understatement. So, as those that are here for you, wanting to follow you, um, we, we pray that you would use this passage today to, to further conform us into who you've called us to be. May, in all of our spiritual formation and development, and just life development, may this event here of the cross, of your betrayal, of your sacrifice, may this moment be at the center of who we're becoming. So we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to work in our lives as we go back through this, as we digest your word and think about it, and, and we ask that it would be so worthwhile because of how you spoke to us. So just, I just invite you, God, to speak, to be strong where I'm weak today, physically, and, and really just be the center of our focus and attention here. We ask you to speak to us when we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may take your seat. And as you're doing so, give a big round of applause for Francesca. Yeah. It's definitely, I think that's our record, all right? <laughs> 
And so for those of you that have not yet jumped on the scripture reading train, this is your chance, okay? Find a long one, and you can take that crown, too, okay? I'm going to try not, I'm going to try my best, too, like there's a discipline here with public speaking. I'm going to try not to sniffle too much into the microphone. I just want you to know that. I will sniffle a bit during this sermon, but I'm going to try to kind of do one of these. All right. And there's six feet, too, so we're all good. All right. Well, um, as you notice... We are here in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in Mark for about 10 months, almost 11. And we are uh, walking through the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus. That's what Mark's about. We are Jesus people. As Christians, our whole life is about going and knowing and showing the way of Jesus. We want to be those that are marked by the way of Jesus. In fact, did you know that the early Christians in the first century... They were first called, uh, before they were even called Christians, they were called the, those that were of, does anybody know? The, it's, right, it's kind of, the answer's right there, right? It's like, VBS question. Uh, I mean, isn't that a cool thing? Wouldn't that be a cool descriptor of your and my life? People just, it's not even what we say singularly, that's important, truth, but th- there's, there's a way in which we live. There's a way in which we respond. There's a way in which we act that people go, that's the way of Jesus. I know that way. Or, or maybe it's like, I don't know that way. Like, what is that way? And so that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about, looking at the way of Jesus. That's really what Mark focuses on, Jesus' actions. If there's a summary that, that kind of builds on that concept for Mark um, with this book, you could also say the Gospel of Mark is particularly about how the way of Jesus which is also the way of heaven or the way of God or the way of the kingdom. The Gospel of Mark is all about how the way of the kingdom, the way of Jesus, is coming into conflict with the way of the world. The way of Jesus will conflict and contradict with the way of the world. Now, when I say the world, I'm not sure what you think of immediately. Maybe you think of like Hollywood and like, you know, pop culture and like that news network, or I'm not sure, whatever you think of. But when, when we talk about the world in the Gospel of Mark, we're talking about a religious system. All right, we, can, we can tend to think very exclusively about the world as being a thing that's outside of religion. But the system of the world that contradicts the way of God is very religious. It, you know, just because you put the name of Jesus on something doesn't mean that it's not the way of the world. You, are you with me? Okay, some of us, that's okay. We'll get there. Mark is all about how the way of Jesus is coming into conflict with the way of the world. And and that religious world that's contrasting Jesus' world is frustrated with the way of Jesus. Um, The way of Jesus is disrupting the systems that be spiritually in Israel. The corrupted systems that are there that are actually rooted in greed and exploitation So Jesus, his way is a threat to the things of the world. I mean, literally, Jesus is cutting into these guys' pockets. He's gaining followers after himself. That's what his, now, it's, which is really like, it's a hard thing to really grasp because there's nothing more beautiful than the way of Jesus, right? Have you seen that in Mark? Just everywhere Jesus goes, the way that he lives, the way that he heals, the way of the kingdom is bringing healing. It's bringing Um, It's bringing transformation. It's bringing liberty. 
I'm thinking back to Mark, what was it, Mark 5, where the, that demonized man in the cave, do you guys remember that study? This guy is just an outcast from society, and the way of the kingdom heals this guy and puts him in his right mind. The way of Jesus is so beautiful, but as beautiful as it is, um, it still is costing people something to follow it and give into it. It's costing the religious powers their, their own power and their own authority. And so there's a battle going on that we've seen where these religious leaders have been set on Jesus's destruction. They have one goal with Jesus, delete him, <laughs> like get him out of here. We need to remove, we got to remove the threat. So Jesus is like on Israel's most wanted list, okay? Um, he's like target numero uno. They want him out of there. And that is really what, what we see happening here in the last week of Jesus's life. We see that plan being played out through these leaders scheming to kill him. Mark uh, chapter 11 through 16, you guys remember this, right? It deals with the last seven days in Jesus's life. It's really interesting. Mark 1 through 10, three years. A lot of incredible things that happened in those three years. I mean, there's four whole books in the Bible to talk about it. But in Mark's gospel, all of that is leading up to these last seven days. In, in church uh, tradition, it's often called Passion Week from the Latin passio for suffering. It's Jesus' suffering week. And we've been following Jesus here on the last week of his life as these leaders are plotting and scheming against him. And Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure. And we end up here in Mark chapter 14 with the verses, just the, you know, a couple of verses that Francesca read. We end up here on Thursday evening. Okay? Mark 14 here at the end. You have Thursday Mark 15, we'll study next week, is Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday. I set that one up for you, right? And then you have Jesus' burial on Holy Saturday, and then we will close in two weeks in Mark 16. Spoiler alert, with Jesus' resurrection. He comes back, okay? Sorry if you didn't know that part. Why would I be sorry to tell you that Jesus rose from the dead? I don't know, but okay. Uh, so here we are on a Thursday evening, and there is a lot happening. The last thing that we saw happen, Jesus was with his disciples gathered in the upper room. Hold on, let me fix that. And I love that this is the last thing we see Jesus doing with his disciples. It says he, he institutes the Lord's Supper, and then they sing a hymn. That is so cool. Jesus is like, okay, now we're going to sing. It's like we get to sing with Jesus. Now, this is Jewish history and tradition, probably singing uh, plenty of the Psalms of Hillel, those hallelujah Psalms. But Jesus is a worship leader in this moment, and um, they're singing about him with a hymn. hey oh, Okay, so this is a beautiful moment, and they go from that special spiritual gathering with Jesus to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of, of, of uh, where they were there by the temple. Um, each week, as we're kind of looking at the events in Jesus' life, remember, we're looking at a different aspect of the way of Jesus. So why don't you jot this down? Here's our big focus here in this passage. <clears throat> With all that's happening to Jesus in Mark 14 in these following moments, we see him abandoned, betrayed, denied, tried, arrested, and beaten, all these different things. The thing that you see about Jesus in this passage is that he is remaining right where God has called him to be. If Mark 14 shows us anything, it's the way that Jesus remained. 
in his hour of trial. You know, I think this is often an overlooked, overlooked virtue of faith. In, in church history, especially today in the American church, we tend to overvalue people that go by faith. And that, that's a big faith, by the way. Abraham went by faith. There's something to going faith. Maybe you're in a season right now, and the call that God has on you is, is to trust him in your going. You're stepping up, and you're stepping out. Are you with me? You ever been there before? Where it's like, you got to trust me. It's like, Lord, you really, like, should I stay, or should I go, Lord? And he's like, you got to go. And that takes, it takes faith. Can I tell you, it took faith to, for us and our family to go, to trust God in his word and start a new church. But what's just as powerful as going faith, listen, is remaining faith. Maybe you know more of what that's like. <laughs> Maybe you're in a season of life where, where the, the call of faith is not to step out and go, but it's to stay right where you, where you are and remain. That's hard faith, isn't it? Because sometimes it's more easy to go in the name of faith <laughs> than it is to stay under the circumstance you're in, to endure the trial uh, that you're placed in. And it takes fasting and prayer and discernment and counsel and community to, to determine whether or not God's calling you to go or stay. But here Jesus is modeling beautifully what remaining faith looks like, to remain in the moment. Now, one of the, the, the key ways that this strength of Jesus is highlighted, listen closely, one of the key ways in this chapter that this attribute of Jesus, his remaining faith, is highlighted is by it being contrasted with the disciples and their inability to do so. Like, there, there's no way to really see something done well than to see it compared to it being done not so well. It makes, you're like, okay, I, there's a clear distinction here. Like, illustration. Like, my wife is, like, Secretly, she has a lot of secret talents. If you knew my, she's got these crazy, weird secret talents. One of them is her expert level playing skills of Super Mario. Like you wouldn't see, see I don't know, maybe, maybe you would, but I don't think you would. Like see my wife and be like, that chick pones at Super Mario. Okay. Um, and like I grew up like playing Mario kind of, like, you know, like, Mario's around, you know, but like, I remember when we had, we had, a little, we had some retro gaming console a few years back, that's how I knew she was the one, by the way, too, but as we were sitting there, I'm seeing, she's like, blah, 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 don't, don't, blah, blah, like going in secret tunnels, I'm just like, I can do that, like, what? It's like you just push a button, you know, and then I go, and it's just like, blah, 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 and I die, you know, and it, there's something about me trying to do what she does so well that really highlighted how good she actually was, and she, she's gifted, she really is good, okay. Same thing applies here in Mark 14 to Jesus. Sometimes the way that you see something done well best is to see it compared to it not being done so well. I mean, that's really the moral of this chapter and story. Jesus tells his disciples that as he is remaining, they are going to do the opposite. They're going to run. He tells them there in verse 27, Jesus says to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Here's the contrast between him and his disciples. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus says, tonight, each of you are going to be made to not remain, but to stumble. You're going to flee. You're going to trip up. 
The word stumble there in the Greek, it means you're going to fall into a trap, a snare. Scandalon is the Greek word there. And he goes back to a prophecy about the Messiah where God himself says, this is really interesting theology for you, God says, I will strike the shepherd. The father's involvement there in the crucifixion. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is the contrast of this chapter. Of this chapter. The disciples are going to stumble and scattered. Well, well, Jesus is remaining. His disciples are running. This is the moral of this chapter. Okay, You can think of it this way. If, if, we, if I had a different sermon title, I think the title of this passage would be The Faithful Shepherd and His Fickle Sheep. Let's think about our own lives for a second. <laughs> um, this is more than just the moral of the story of this chapter. Amen? <laughs> this is the, the story of our lives, isn't it? Why are we here today? Are we here because of how faithful we are? Are, are we here because of how strong our faith is? And Do we get a pat on the back and we're like, God, I've made it? No, we're not here because of our faithfulness. We're here because of his faithfulness. This is the story of history. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of Christianity. The faithful shepherd and his fickle sheep. Jesus is faithful and we falter. Have you been face-to-face with that in your life, that you just struggle to be faithful? In moments where you need to remain and show up, you and I, we have this tendency like the disciples to scatter and flee, to walk away from things that we're even convinced of. There's just something about the human experience. I just want to, by the way, welcome us all into the same community here of faulty humans. Welcome. You're welcome here. You're you're welcome here as, as another human seeking to know this faithful God. And that knows their own inability to be faithful to him in so many different ways. Uh, This is, again, what this chapter shows us. It contrasts Jesus' ability to remain and the disciples' inability to do so. Let's look at a couple ways that we see Jesus remaining. The first thing is found in the next verse here. Jesus tells his disciples, you're all going to stumble and scatter but here's what he says. He goes, after that happens, I want to give you a game plan. We're going to meet up. This, this is going to be a crazy week. The next few days are going to be nuts. All right, but when, when all is said and done, we have a rendezvous point, okay? And it's Galilee. He goes, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. In fact, the angels have to remind the disciples of this after Jesus is raised and they can't actually believe it. He's like, he told you he was going to be a Galilee. Like, where, like, you know where to go. Go meet him where he said he'll be. Now, what I want to point out is how Jesus, in the midst of what's in front of him, how Jesus, you can write this down, Jesus remained confident. This is beautiful. Jesus, in the face of the pressure before him, he knew he was about to be, he knew his betrayer was at hand. Judas is already gone. There's 11 disciples here. Jesus has read Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. Jesus knows he's on a hit list and there's no running. He knows the suffering that awaits him. And in this moment, he's still confident. Something beautiful about a confidence that can't be touched. There's something beautiful about a confidence that that has no connection to circumstance, but is conditioned by something or someone else. That's what Jesus is modeling this. Do you see this? He goes, after I have been raised. I love how confident he is here. 
He's like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But Jesus is just, he's confident. Now, I want you to notice what he's confident in. Despite the fact that he's going to suffer, he knows that God's word promised that he would be raised. This is just beautiful. Jesus himself modeling, let me say this, Jesus modeling what true confidence should look like. True confidence. It's confidence that's rooted in God's promises, right? That's confidence. Now, we're not talking about arrogance. That's a whole other thing. You could sniff that out. It's just like ugly. It's like, oh, that's arrogant. Now, arrogance is self-centered, isn't it? Confidence is God-centered. Confidence is rooted in what you're convinced in in regards to what God has said. And it's more than that, okay? It's one thing to say God said this and I believe it. It's a whole other thing to, like Abraham, believe that God is able to perform what he's promised. I mean, I've been there. Like, God has spoken clear things to me, and I'm like, I believe that God said this. Do you believe that he'll do it? I'm not so sure. Believing that God, not just that he said it, but here's Jesus, confident that God is faithful to his word and able to perform what he promises. And where are you at in life right now where God is calling you into greater confidence? Trust my word. Trust in my ability to perform what I've promised. Jesus is beautifully confident. I love Proverbs 14, 26. There's some of us that think that like confidence is an aspect of pride and we're like, we're trying to be humble, but it's really false humility. Like, listen, it's not prideful to be confident in the Lord and what he said. Like people ask you, what has God spoken? You're like, well, I don't really know. Like, I think he's kind of said this, but like, I'm just human. So I don't know. You know, it's like, you can be confident in what he said to you. Look at this. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. I love that. And his children will find a place of refuge. This is beautiful, strong confidence modeled by Jesus, who's just remaining here. Now, what's, what's really, um, again, remember I talked to you about the contrast? We see Jesus' strength through the disciples' weaknesses. I want you to notice how Jesus' contrast, his confidence is now contrasted with Peter's. Peter's going to be, quote-unquote, confident here as well, but it's a different kind of confidence. Peter says, Lord... Even if all are made to stumble, I won't. So, like, he's full on dissing his homies, by the way. He's like, because Jesus just said, you're going to strike the shepherd. The sheep are going to scatter. And Peter's like, yeah, I could see that happening to them, Lord. They're not as faithful as me. Now, there's a different confidence here, right? Jesus has strong confidence. Peter has what we want to watch out for. It's called self-confidence, where you think you're stronger than you really are. You're not as weak. You're not aware of how weak you are. You're more confident in your ability than is realistic, okay? This is very common with men especially, you know, who, like, love what they see in the mirror. And they're like, I'm the man, okay? I'm the one. And we make an exception for ourselves. I mean, here Peter is professing his own singular faithfulness. Lord, even if everybody else departs from you, I won't because I'm Peter. I'm the rock, Lord. Look at how far I've come spiritually, Lord. I've been so close to you. I I know so much. Paul will say this. Paul says, let him who thinks he stands, strong and tall, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Galatians 6.3, Paul says, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. There's a danger here to self-deception, being self-confident, thinking that you can do it on your own, thinking that you have within yourself the resources to be faithful to Jesus. 
perfectly compared to everyone else. And we do this all the time. We kind of single ourselves out as different than everyone else in, in some way. Um, earlier, remember Proverbs 14, 26, strong confidence? Well, 10 verses earlier in Proverbs 14, it says, A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. There's the difference. Strong confidence, which is God-centered. Self-confidence or arrogance, which is self-centered. Now notice this. Jesus responds. This is really interesting. So Peter professes his singular faithfulness. And so Jesus takes a moment to point out Peter's own particular denial. Peter's like, Jesus is like, okay, you want to go there, Peter? You want to talk about just you? Let's talk about just you in front of everybody here, okay? Let's do that. Jesus says to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So Jesus is like, hey, every, you guys are all going to fall away. You're human. It's going to happen. It's what happens. Okay. I'm going to be faithful. You're gonna, there's going to be faithlessness. You're, you're going to struggle. Um, Peter goes, not me, Lord. <laughs> Everyone else but me. Jesus goes, no, no, Peter, especially you, bro. Okay? Like, there's, there's going to be a rooster involved. The, the other guys don't even get a rooster. You get a rooster. Okay? It's a whole event, Peter. We're gonna be, they're going to be studying in Boca in 2,000 years, you know? Now, at this point, right, you would think that what you do in this moment is you go, okay, Lord, forgive me for being self-confident, but we love Peter, don't we? He's just like us. But he spoke more vehemently. Remember, Peter is, uh, by the way, the one dictating this gospel to his disciple, John Mark. One of the best evidences um, for the Bible is how the authors of the Bible don't hide their flaws and failures and weaknesses. Have you noticed that? I love the, the, the narrative that says the Bible was, was designed by humans who wanted religious power, like Peter. Which C.S. Lewis says, and Tim Keller emphasized this, that they would have, to, to have done that and make all this stuff up, they would have been inventing a literary device that didn't exist for a couple hundred years, first of all. Secondly, if you're making a story where like, you're, you're using it to use power. Aren't you going to make yourself look good? Wouldn't you be like, all right, let's leave the whole denial, the rooster thing. Let's cut that out, okay? Like, it's not going to look good if I'm going to be in power. So this is just a beautiful display of truth here. This is really happening. Peter is even showcasing his pride. He's, he's like, you know, and this is what happens too. Like, when you are humbled, you're more willing to admit you're prideful. <laughs> you just are. You, you're not much different than everyone else. We all have pride. Well, not like them. No, we all have pride. We all, we all have a tendency to be self-confident. You know, C.S. Lewis even says this. He says, one of the best indications of pride in me is my frustration with the pride in others. Like the definition of self-righteousness is hearing a message on self-confidence and self-righteousness and applying it to someone else. And so we're, we're, all, we're just like Peter, guys. We're all here in the same boat with the same tendency to be self-confident, to have our eyes on ourselves, and to even deny the very words of Jesus and to say, Jesus, I know humans fall short, but Lord, you, have ne- you, you made me different, Lord. You ain't met a human like me, all right? Jesus is like, yeah, I have, okay? Peter says, if I have to, deny, if I have to die with you, I'll, Lord, I will die with you before I even deny you. And they all were just like, yeah, us too, Lord. They all said it too. Now, we, we do this all the time, don't we? we? We make these promises to God. 
about how, Lord, this is, now I'm going to be faithful, Lord. I know all of those failures have led up to this point where I am, it's like I'm a new superhero, I'm a faithful man, and here I am, and I'm here to be faithful like I've never been before. We, we all do this, but as the story goes, we see our own humanity in the disciples. Jesus, though, beautifully remaining confident. Isn't that really cool to see in contrast with Peter? Let's keep going. And really, these points are going to be the backdrop to the story. We're really just going to let this story kind of read over us. It says, Then they came to a place... Uh, at the Mount of Olives, which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So, so Jesus and his disciples, they head off to Gethsemane, which was an olive press. It was olive trees, beautiful location still in Israel today. And it was a place where olives were pressed to produce oil. Oil in scripture is often symbolic of anointing, of blessing. And we have here now Christ which is, literally means the anointed one, is going into his own olive press. You ever been in the press before? Okay. Of suffering, of trial, of difficulty with the Lord, and it's through this press that anointing and the Holy Spirit is going to flow out of this moment in a powerful way for Jesus to do what God's called him to do. He brings his 11 disciples with him, and he gives them you know, a simple instruction. Sit here while I pray. Let's point out at this time, it's late. It's late. You and I would be tired from Passover, such a long day, sitting at the table. I mean, these guys just had a meal. They ate. You ever like, you know what I'm talking about? There's just something about, it's like, think of last, what is it, two weeks ago? I'm like two weeks late here. So that post-Thanksgiving, just nappy time, okay? Like, that's what's going on here. They're toasting. Jesus is like, imagine that post-Thanksgiving, Jesus is like, we're going to go hike a mountain. Come on. We're going to go. Now, I want you to sit here. It's late. It's dark. Your eyes are heavy. But I want you to sit here. Those of you who just professed your undying faithfulness to me, here's my instruction. I'm not even telling you to die for me right now. Just, just sit there and watch while I pray. Now, notice this. He took Peter, James, and John. This is his inner circle. Um, you know, you've noticed this. Like, sometimes Jesus breaks away from the 12 to get alone with the three. The funny thing about this is, like, I've always... <laughs> I haven't so much in these cases felt bad for the 12 because it's kind of like obvious, okay, those are the ones that Jesus is raising up to have specific leadership positions in the church. I find it interesting that sometimes Andrew is left out. I, I just, that's the thing that kind of hits my head. Like sometimes Andrew's included. You know, I see another Andrew right there. You know what I'm saying, bro? Sometimes Andrews are just left out, right, Andrew? Yeah, man, there's another Andrew right there. You know, there's just something about that. But but sincerely, isn't that, I feel bad for Andrew here. It's like, why didn't, like, sometimes he's allowed to come, sometimes he's not. It's like, no, Andrew. Like, it's one thing to be like, no, 12, I need these guys. But it's another thing to be like, no, 12, I need these guys, but not you, Andrew. So, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. They come with him. So the disciples are there in Gethsemane. He goes a little further, and he takes these ones a little deeper. And Jesus begins in his humanity to emotionally, this is healthy, by the way, to emotionally process the trauma, the difficulty, the weight of the moment he's in. He begins to be troubled. Notice this. This is the Savior of the world who is troubled and deeply distressed. And notice what he said. He says to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He says, would you please stay here and watch? Jesus bears his soul to Peter, James, and John. And he's like, guys, I am... I am sorrowful unto death. I have, I have never been as distressed as I am now. Would you please? And here's what he asked. He's like, would you just keep me 
company? Would you just sit here? Would you just be here for me in my time of need? And would you watch out? Like, he's literally like, can you watch? Like, be on watch. I think there's, there's a spiritual and physical component here. On, on one, on, you know, in one sense, he's like, can you watch my back? Like, I'm not trying to get clubbed in the back of the head while I'm praying. I mean, sincerely. Like, watch. You know, like, be alert. Like, just keep, keep a heads up. Keep your eyes out. But also, spiritually, watch with me. Be in this moment. Be fully awake to what's happening. How many times has God called us to that? Be fully awake to what I'm doing. Now, I want to point out, as Jesus invites their company to support and surround him in his time of distress, I want to point out that Jesus is God in human flesh. God in human flesh needed company in his distress. If Jesus needs companionship in his trials, do you think we might? You think we might need to extend out of our own comfort zone to some people and just say, hey, I'm, I'm deeply distressed. It's amazing how, how guarded we can be because we're so afraid of what people are going to think. But can I tell you what happens most of the time when you invite a couple people to just come be with you in your pain? What it does is it, it unlocks the pain of others that they're holding back. And they go, well, I, I feel the same way. And that's a good friend. You know, sometimes, can I say this? Sometimes the greatest ministry we can offer someone in their distress is just our presence, like, like the disciples here. He's not like, hey, can you guys come counsel me in the truth so I can figure out how to get through this hard thing? Like, with Job and his friends, that was the worst thing that they, like, their best ministry ended when they started talking. Job, here's why we think you're in this problem. It's like, just, just be with me. The ministry of presence, it's really beautiful. Um, it tells us this, that Jesus invites the disciples to be with him in his time of need, and then he goes a little farther. So we just see this picture of Jesus kind of getting further into solitude and isolation with God, and he falls on the ground, and he prays. He prays to the Father that if it were possible, that this hour might pass from him. You can write this next one down. We see Jesus remains connected to the Father. Jesus' suffering and hardship wasn't a time to pull himself up by the bootstraps, wipe his tears and the snot from his nose, and act like everything's okay. His, his time of distress was a moment where he brought people closer into his inner circle in life. And then, listen, he, he went to the one who he needed most. You need both of these in your life. You need your inner circle that's, where, that's there for you in your distress, and then you need to get alone with God and just cast yourself before him. Just say, Lord, here I am as I am. This is what I'm going through. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm processing. Um, Jesus doesn't depart from his relationship with the Father in his, in his time of trial. If anything, it drew him closer to God. He just starts to pray. I want you to see this prayer that Jesus prays as he stays connected to his Father. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, Take this cup away from me. In scripture, the cup is often symbolic of, of judgment and wrath. Jesus knows the cup that awaits him. He's been appointed to be, um, you could say, a greater than Nehemiah, who is a cup bearer. Jesus is about to bear the cup of God's very wrath. He's about to bear the cup of sin. What, what awaits him is the worst suffering any human has ever experienced. So he says, Father, 
I know everything and anything is possible for you. And he, and he just, he's desperately asked God, would you take this away? Huma the humanity of Jesus on full display here. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So, so in this prayer, which many of us are familiar with, Jesus models two key components of prayer before God, especially in times of distress. Jesus employs both desperation upon his Father and devotion to his Father. Both of these are needed, okay? Um, desperation is where I come before God, and, and I just bear it all, and I beg for him to remove the thing that's hard in my life. Paul says, I pray to the Lord on three separate occasions, different seasons of life, for him to remove this from me. Have you had something in your life that just won't go away? Do you know what I'm talking about? And you're like, Jesus, please, please. And the other component of this is, no matter what, I'm going to trust you. Not what I will, but your will be done. Both desperation and devotion, supplication and surrender. Both of these are so necessary in our connection with God. Like, if, if all we ever have is just devotion without desperation, we're, we're actually just stuffing the pain we feel, and we're letting bitterness grow on the inside because we're not processing our frustration, our difficulty, and disappointment with the Lord. And so we just kind of carry devotion. And we have this like hardline mindset that Christianity, is, it's, it's, it's about being strong and being devoted and don't feel too much. Don't think that way. Don't say that. Don't confess that. Don't be so weak in public like that. Be more devoted. I'm sorry, my, my model is Jesus, okay? And Jesus models desperation. But notice he also models devotion. He's like, Lord, I'm going to beg of you. I'm desperate for you to remove this thing from me. But no matter what, my devotion to you is because of who you are, your God. It's not on what I want you to do for me. It's not on, it's not on the outcome that I'm praying for. I'm begging for this outcome. But if they're not healed, and if this doesn't go away, and this problem remains, you're still God, and I will devote myself to you, whatever you will. I'm going to trust that. God, I'm going to trust that your will at the end of the day is better than mine. That's a hard place to get to. You shouldn't get there too easily. You with me? Like, you shouldn't get there so fast. Sometimes you got to, like, shouldn't you feel a little bit more? <laughs> shouldn't you really process that? Now, it's a healthy place to get to in the right way. Desperation and devotion. Ultimately, Jesus is connected, I love this, to his father. Abba, father, or papa is, is what it says there. Um, uh, this, this word from that, that culture, Jesus is connected to his father. This is sonship on full display. I can come to my dad desperate and devoted at the same time. I, I want to point out Jesus, as he surrenders to the father, okay, scripture teaches that Jesus is he's like the fulfillment of every archetype, every type figure in the Old Testament. He's the, he's, the, he's the ultimate Moses, the ultimate, we said, Nehemiah, the ultimate David. He's also the ultimate Adam. Um, he's the, uh, Paul calls him the second Adam or the greater Adam. Um, and here we see that on display. The first Adam, when faced with God's will in the garden, chose his own will. And here's our Savior, Jesus, the second and greater Adam, reversing what Adam has done. 
Jesus is in the garden, the greater than Adam, and he passes the test that the first Adam failed. So scripture says it this way. The Bible's so cool. Look at this. Romans 5 says, uh, right here, Romans 5.19, for, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam really screwed things up, you know. So also, notice this, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Jesus is the greater than Adam. The question at the end of the day is, which Adam are you in, right? Are you in the first Adam or are you in the second Adam? I encourage you to seek your refuge in Adam number two. Amen? All right. So Jesus is like processing this with the Lord. He's, he's telling his disciples, can you, go, can you just sit, be with me? I want you to pray. And, and just, you know, not even an hour ago, they were gung-ho, maybe even like 20 minutes ago. They were like, Lord, we will not, we will die with you before we deny you. And then he came and he found them sleeping on the job. And I love that he calls out Peter because Peter's the leader. And everyone is going to go, you know, we all go where the leader goes. So he calls out Peter, and he calls him by his old name. It's like, you're being the old guy, Simon. Peter's like, what you call me? Call me Simon, okay? Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not stay awake for one hour? So the disciples go from, Lord, we'll die with you, to we're going to fall asleep on you. Okay? Um, completely unconscious calls out to Peter, and he, and he says to Peter specifically, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. This is a really key passage. The spirit is willing, Peter. There's, Peter, nobody doubts that you want to do the right thing, buddy. Okay? Problem is the flesh is weak. <laughs> um, Peter, struggling against the temptation for unconsciousness. The battle with the Sandman, Peter, okay? Struggling to stay awake. That temptation is nothing compared to the temptation that's going to follow you tonight. It's often how it is. Minor temptations are little um, opportunities to grow so that when I face that bigger temptation, I'm, I'm, I'm coming from a place of victory. I want to be, be battle ready. Peter's like, or Jesus is like, Peter, you're going to face bigger temptations than trying to stay awake. And Peter, I want you to know that when you're face-to-face -face with those temptations, the temptation to deny me, whatever our temptation is, we can fill in the blank there, Jesus says, your, your willing heart is not going to be enough. It's just not. Let me point out first that it, having a willing spirit is a great thing. You should have a like, like, there's really no Christianity without desire. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, we're not here to just modify behaviors of all nations and just be like, I'm a Christian, I say and do the right things. It's like, get out of here, Mr. Roboto, all right? True Christianity is a transformed heart that desires the things that my flesh fails to perform. Anybody ever been in that battle? Sorry, have you ever been a human being? Okay, all right, good. Paul says in Romans 7, he's like, the things I love, I don't do. The things I hate to do, I'm privy to do. Because there's more going on, and there's more that's needed in your and my life than just a willing heart. You need a willing heart. That's step one. It's not less than that, but it's more than a willing heart. You see, in as much as you have a willing heart, the problem is you have a weak flesh, too. You don't have, in and of yourself, the ability to perform what you desire to do, Paul would say. There's a law in your members that's at war with your desire. 
You need spiritual resources. You need strength outside of yourself that comes through a relationship with God. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. This is what he tells Peter to do. You need to access the kingdom. And if there was more time, I mean, Jesus could have also said, um, not only is your flesh weak, but your enemy is strong, right? And so, Peter, you've got to watch out. You've got to pray. So again, he went away. Jesus prayed, and he spoke the same words. I really love that Jesus doesn't pray once. That prayer, he says the same thing about the Father taking it away. But He just says that sometimes you have to pray the same thing multiple times for a season. And you just further drive it into your heart. Now, he comes back, and of course... They fall asleep again. I love the scene that's painted here. Their, their eyes are heavy. Have you ever been this tired? And they don't know what to say. They're just like, hey, Jesus. Where are we? Now, notice this. He came to them a third time, which is significant because Peter will deny him three times. And he says, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. Like, uh, there, there's a time to rest. There's a time to be awake. This is the time to be awake. You're sleeping when you should be awake. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. The time is here. Jesus has strengthened himself in the Lord. And he says, rise, let us be going. And he looks over. He says, see, my betrayer is at hand. So he sees a, what John tells us is a small army with torches and lanterns and weapons and horses coming his way. It says, immediately while he was still speaking, here's Judas. Where's Judas been? The disciples were like, Wait, he wasn't here the whole time? No. Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, came to Jesus. Um, he, it says, he, uh, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Um, so he, here's the moment here that Judas is coming to, uh, you know, he's pre, it's been a premeditated betrayal of Jesus. This isn't like something he's done in the moment. And, you know, we could speculate it's likely... Um, Judas went to um, the upper room knowing that they were gathering there. Maybe they went there first and Jesus wasn't there. So now he goes, well, I know another place he could be. And he leads them here to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Mount of Olives. And it says this, that now his betrayer, Judas, had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. This is actually an insightful verse. What it tells us about Jesus is that Jesus didn't stand out in a crowd. Now, it was night too, so it's like harder to identify them. Um, you know, they didn't pay their FBL bill last, you know, in that century, so there was no power, right? Ha <laughs> ha! Um, it's a horrible joke, but um, I, I love that, that Judas, like, the fa- that Judas has to identify Jesus. It's not like the disciples are there and Jesus is, like, floating. Like, oh, it's the floating one. I think the floating one's the Messiah. Or, as, like, so much modern art paints him with, like, these, like, you know, like, a halo, and he's just like, I'm Jesus, you know, like... He was a Middle Eastern man that blended in with the crowd. Uh, Isaiah tells us, actually, Isaiah says about the Messiah that he'll have no form of majesty, is the the word there, or comeliness when we see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him in the flesh. So so Jesus is just another uh, man from Nazareth, is the idea here. And so Judas has to identify him, and as soon as he had come, immediately Judas goes up to him and says to him, Rabbi, Rabbi. And he kisses him. Um, Proverbs says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Right? So your, your enemies will wound you too. Okay? And it's okay to get little kisses from your friends. Okay? Hey, love you. All right? It's okay. But, that's weird, but there's a principle here that true friends are willing to wound you because they love you, right? And be careful of the friend who's not, who's apt to flattery and compliments. There might be some deception going on. We see that with, with Judas. And so they laid their hands on Jesus and they took him. So just stop for a second. Process what's happening. Humanity is arresting God. The very hands that he's created are being laid upon him. And they're taking him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword. Every gospel except for John says it was one of the 12. But remember John and Peter, they had like a little spiritual sibling rivalry thing going on. They're always like competing with each other. John mentions that he outruns Peter to the tomb. He's like, I got there first. And so it's only John's gospel that says it was Peter. Peter cut the guy's ear off. It was Peter. Peter cut his ear. That was Peter with the sword. But Peter's like having, he's like, Mark, just say that one of the guys drew his sword. Okay, come on. give me Some guy, one of the 12, took his sword and, you know, struck the servant of the high priest. And, what, you know, was he trying to decapitate? You know, I, like, I'm not a tactician here, okay? But, like, um, you know, from the Detroit survival training videos I've seen, like, one of the things, I'm just kidding, one of the things I've learned is like in that lethal scenario, you're not trying to go, if I could just affect half of your hearing loss, I'll survive, you know? I don't know if he intended to cut off the guy's ear. That's my thought. Likely, uh, this was a, an accidente. All right. Um, Jesus, what does he tell Peter? In John's gospel, it doesn't tell us here in Mark. He tells, he's like, Peter, what you, put your sword away, bro. Put your sword away, okay? That's an army, okay? Put your sword away, all right? Um, if Jesus needed an army, he could call down an army at any moment, okay? Um, and then uh, the, the man who got his ear cut off, his name was Malchus. And so Jesus heals the guy, takes his ear off the ground. <laughs> Total Robin Hood Menentites moment, you know, like, puts it on. Horrible movie, don't watch that. But put it on his head, heals the guy completely. And then Jesus answers and says to them, notice this, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? Like, he goes, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't, you didn't seize me. Like, am I a warrior, a battle warrior? Have I, have I been going around town preaching with a, with a, son, with a sword in my hand? So, so Jesus, I want to I point this out. Jesus remained calm. This is really important. This is a theme in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is calm in the midst of chaos. Something about Jesus' ability in the chaos of the storm. The disciples are whipping out their swords. They're cutting off ears, okay? They're, they're going, we got to stop this. And, and here's Jesus calm amidst the chaos. There, there's just, there, I don't think in our time, by the way, in history, which how many of us would agree we're, we're living maybe in a time of social chaos? Anybody want to agree with that? A couple of us? Um, I I'm going to affirm that. I believe we're living in a time of spiritual, social, emotional, political, national chaos. Okay, have, you, have you been to 2020? You've ever seen that? You've been there that year? So one of the most powerful ways to shine a light in this culture, in this moment, 
is to embody a non-anxious spirit, calmness in the midst of chaos. There's something about, I'm not talking about like pseudo-calmness. We're like, you know, there's reasons to be concerned. I'm not talking about a lack of concern. I'm talking about a peace that surpasses understanding. And Jesus is just here, calm in the chaos. How's your calm been? Chaos is inevitable, just, you know. Human experience, Christianity, it's part of it. Chaos is going to be there. The question is, how is your heart going to meet the chaos? Are you going to meet it with, with chaos in your own heart, or are you going to meet it with the calm of Jesus? Jesus remains calm while his disciples are freaking out. It says, then they, notice this, they all forsook Jesus and fled. Likely because they see Jesus as giving in rather than fighting back. And they're like, what are you doing? You're the Messiah. You're going to give yourself over and die? Instead of believing what he's promised about the resurrection, they might be bitter. Certainly Peter is not happy about Jesus rebuking him, saying, put your sword away. Peter's like, what were the past three years for? Just to give you over? Now, Mark (laughs) tells us that a certain, this is in there, we're going to read the Bible, a certain young man was following him. He had a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. Sometimes you just got to, you got to go, and you got to go commando if you're rushing out of the house. And the young men laid hold of him, and the linen cloth, um, right, and he fled from them naked. Just, this is just in the narrative. Um, Tradition holds that this was actually Mark, the guy who's writing it, like Peter, he's like, Peter, I got a detail. I haven't told anybody, but let's put, let's put it in the Bible. Um, I was there. When they came to my house to see if you guys were there in the upper room, I said no, and then I followed. I didn't, I didn't have time, so I just threw a, it's like a robe on. And anyway, I ended up naked. It was, all right, next verse. So um, the, the, you get the picture, though, right? Whether they're naked or clothed, everybody's fleeing from Jesus. And they led Jesus away. Never a good thing when people are leading Jesus. They lead him to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. I want you to notice this. They're bringing, so Jesus is about to be a part of one of two phases of trials. Mark doesn't include all of them, but there's a, um, a religious trial with Israel. It starts with Annas, then Caiaphas, Caiaphas, and then the Sanhedrin. And then there's going to be a civil trial with uh, with the Roman, a uh, civil trial that way with the Romans. Um, because uh, Rome removed Israel's ability to execute the death sentence. And so they have to, they can't just, even though the Torah gave them rights to, they weren't able to civilly, so they had to go through Rome. But it starts here with a Jewish trial. Um, Jesus is being led, and I want you to notice Peter's following Jesus at a distance. This is a really important detail. Peter's denial begins with his distance. He begins to distance himself from Jesus. You don't go from like willing to die with Jesus to denying him overnight. Do we know this? Usually you go from a willingness to die with Jesus to denying him through incremental distance. Incremental distance. You start to distance yourself. And the things, I mean, I've been there. Like, I didn't, how did I get here? Just incremental. You ever been there? We look back like, look how far I've drifted. Just incremental distance slowly but surely. Peter follow, Peter's followed Jesus as closely as anyone for the past three years, and now for the first time in his life, he's following Jesus from 
a distance. One little compromise here, one, one little relationship here, one little, and we just slowly start to turn our hearts away from the Lord. He sat down with the servants, and now he's in the company of the world, warming himself at the fire. The chief priests and all the council, they sought testimony against Jesus, against Jesus to put him to death, but they couldn't find anything because he's without sin. Okay? Like, how do you try an innocent person who is incapable of committing crimes? Um, they find no fault in him, is what Pilate says. He found no fault in him. But they're trying to make, Je- they're, they're, they're going to, you know, they need reason to bring him to Rome as guilty worthy of the death penalty. So they, they are going to seek to uh, declare him guilty of blasphemy. If they can make him guilty of blasphemy, they have their own religious right to execute him. The problem is there's no grounds for it, so they have to make stuff up. So you got people coming up bearing false witness against them, but their testimonies don't agree. Okay, we've seen this. Um, the same rose up, and they bore more false witness, saying, and they, they twist his words. I heard him say that I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. That's not what he said. He was talking about his own body. So now that's, like a, that's considered blasphemy in and of itself to speak against the temple like that. But they were dumb. That's what it says. They were dum-dums, Okay. Their testimonies didn't agree. But notice this. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? So, so they want Jesus to defend himself of things that are just preposterous. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to play your game. Four speech isn't new. Check this out. But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? So, so the way Jesus drives them mad, is he doesn't speak when they want him to. And then he speaks and says what they don't want to hear. They expect him, if he's so quiet, let's, let's bind him under a divine oath. That's, that's literally what they do here with this question. And the high priest says, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And Jesus says, as God said to Moses, I am. And you, I love this. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You think this trial is gnarly. You're in power and everything. How's it feel? I am who you say, and there's a judgment coming. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory. Write this last one down. Jesus remained committed. I'll invite the band up here. Jesus remained committed. Jesus remained committed to truth no matter what it would cost him. This is so important. Jesus' commitment to truth, this is big, it wasn't determined by convenience. What can I get, get away with being committed to? Like, what's the least amount of trouble I can cause in culture and still be a Christian? Jesus is committed to the truth. He fears God, not man. So he speaks the truth. This is the most loving thing he could do in this moment, is tell them the truth of who he is. I'm the Christ. Now, some of these Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, uh, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they come to believe in Jesus from him speaking the truth. We we can't determine how people are going to respond. We're not accountable to people's responses. We're accountable to what we do with the truth. Jesus speaks the truth. The high priest tears his clothes and says, what further evidence do we need? What what further need do we have of witnesses? With his own lips, he spoke blasphemy. What do you think? And they all 
unanimously condemned him to be deserving of death, which is actually illegal in that culture to unanimously condemn an individual. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. Notice the, 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 the low of humanity. The officers struck them with the palm of their hands. We've all wounded God with our sin. And here's the, the display of humanity at its worst, mocking and ridiculing Jesus, saying, if you know who hit you, why don't you tell us? Prophesy, Messiah. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, Jesus is suffering for his commitment to truth as the Messiah. A servant girl came, uh, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. It's a little girl, okay? Like it's a little, this is not like a big soldier, like, are you one of the disciples? This is a girl, hey, Peter. You were with him. That's what she says. He denied it to a little girl. Peter's faith has been through some stuff here. He said, I don't, I don't know or understand what you're saying. And then the rooster crows. I wonder if that moment Peter's like, was that the first or second? I hope that was the, that was the first crow. And then the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. Same girl. It's like, hey, here's one of them. He denies it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them for you're a Galilean and your speech shows it. We know who you are. Your accent gives it away, okay? When you're from Brooklyn, everybody knows it, okay? Right, Tony? <laughs> I like that Tony laughed at that. Um, and here's Peter finding himself out. And, and, and in this moment, notice what he does. He just like succumbs to the, to the fear and the bitterness of his heart. He begins to curse and swear. Peter's like using some F-bombs kind of thing. Like he's really emotionally responding with carnality. He says, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And the second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice. You will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. I don't know how many of us can relate to Peter here this morning. It's like, Lord, I, I want to be so much more faithful to you than I am. But I'm so much more like Peter than I am like Jesus. Do you know what I mean? While Jesus is remaining committed, Peter is hardened his heart towards the Lord, and he's gone from a little bit of distance to all-out denial of the Lord. And how did he get here but, but that slow, incremental process and Peter knows it. He's weeping. He's broken. It's a sad moment. Now, the best news in this story, as we end with Peter, is that it doesn't end here for the guy. That's the best part, right? You ever felt like everything was going to end on your failure? You ever felt that way? Like, oh, I failed too much. I've committed too many times. This is where it all ends. And that, that is right where God's grace shows up so beautifully. Um, after Christ is resurrected, he has a special moment with Peter where he restores Peter. Puts Peter back on his feet. Um, 
Peter goes on to be one of the pioneers of the early church. He goes from denying Jesus to a little girl to standing up in front of hostile crowds and proclaiming the gospel, ultimately to the point of death. Peter, too, will be crucified. I imagine that Peter and Paul have had some conversations about their own inability to be faithful to God. And I wonder if Paul's words in 2 Timothy were on Peter's mind as he's being crucified. As he looks back on his life, if there was like a theme that could summarize his journey, maybe it was what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So, so here's the good news of the gospel for you today. Your life today is not about your faithfulness. The center of your hope, the center of your relationship with God is not in your ability to be faithful to him, but it's in his perfect ability to remain faithful to you. He remains faithful today. Despite how faithless we have been, Jesus is faithful. When everything else fades away, when we're running, he's remaining. And here's the best news of all. Not just that we're over here as faithless and he's over here as faithful, but, but the point of this is he's faithful to the faithless. He's, he's, a, he's a God of covenantal love, ultimately displaying this by going to the cross when we were unfaithful. He bore our sin. He bore our shame to declare once and for all that I will always be faithful to you. And that's to be our strength. Amen. 